0: Living outside of your comfort zone is also a skill. If you just do it a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more, all of a sudden, what I think most people would consider that ring outside of your comfort zone becomes your comfort zone. And in fact, I find it difficult to live anywhere else.
1: I know for a lot of us, this is one of the slowest weeks of the year. You know, Thanksgiving in America is the week where people don't really work. I'm not working today. I'm just pushing this podcast out. But I don't know. It's always one of those like weird weeks in the year where you're sort of out of your normal day-to-day, and it's an opportunity to reflect. And I can't think of a better guest to think about possibilities and what might be a new take on an old routine. What might we change in the week after this slow period, that's going to make all the difference. So with that, I'm really excited to share with you this conversation with someone who I've been following for many, many years, and I'm guessing so many of you too. Let us know your name and what it is you do.
0: It's always a tough one. Tine in. That's the easy part. And uh, what do I do? I don't know. I've got a cruise business. I write a blog. I've written books, travel a lot.
1: As you all know, I'm an enormous blog fan, and I've been reading Tynan.com really forever, and especially his Nomad Packing List, which I anticipated. Tynan started that blog over 15 years ago, and as you'll hear, he's just always been sort of ahead of the cultural zeitgeist. He's a fresh, interesting thinker, and he's always a couple years ahead. So, <laughs> If you want to see what life might look like in the future, Tynan.com over the years has just been a reliable place where we could get just a small glimpse of it. And speaking of fresh thinking, he mentioned CruiseSheet.com, which deconstructs the cruising model for members of our community in a very cool way. Is it a process to identify trends, or is it another process that's going on that's put you in this situation so many times over the years?
0: I do see myself like that, but I, but it's not a process. Like I think actually I don't really care if I'm early to things or not. I think actually a lot of it is that I don't really care about anything except whether or not I think something is the right thing to do. And so I think when you start with first principles like that where you're like, okay, what's available? What do I want? How do I mix those things to be something that, you know, works for me, you aren't relying on recommendations or for other people to figure it out first. So you end up figuring it out first. Maybe I have to figure them out early because there's no easy way to do them a lot of times.
1: Just a little bit more background here. So, earlier in the 2000s, Tynan was again ahead of the curve, this time at the center of a more controversial industry than cruise vacations. Tynan was a central figure in the subculture that arose around pickup artists, or PUAs, which I'm going to ask Tynan to give his definition of and insight into in a minute. But for listeners not familiar, that whole scene got blown up by a very famous book by Neil Strauss called The Game, which is part expose, part narrative. About a group of pickup artists, including Tynan, who features under the pseudonym of Herbal. Pretty cool. <laughs> so they live for a while and all work together in a house in LA named Planet Hollywood.
0: Pickup, sort of best known from the book The Game, is, you know, I, there's two sides of it. I think what it looks like from the outside is like what are the pickup lines that you can go to a club and attract girls with. And I think honestly, that's why I got into it. Like I did, I wasn't looking for anything deeper. When you actually get into it, what, what it is, is it's sort of understanding better what a woman's experience is in dating, because I think as a man, we have a really limited view of that, what they're looking for, understanding sort of what about you is attractive and what isn't. And I think for me that some of those things were different than what I thought it was coming in. And then basically finding the bridge between those two things. You know, I found myself as like an early 20s nerd who just had zero idea of what to do with women. I mean, like less than zero it was, you know, hilarious situations all over the place. And I just thought, well, there might be a solution for this and sort of went looking for it.
1: What year was this?
0: This must have been 2002, 2001, somewhere in there. I used to be a professional gambler. And so we sort of had these chat rooms and a friend there had told me about this site. It was called Fast Seduction at the time. And I went there and I looked at it and I was like, oh, I don't know, this looks sleazy. I had this ridiculous crush on a girl who lived, you know, 10 states away and I thought we were gonna get married even though we didn't talk. And so I was like, oh, this is pointless. And then at some point I just had this realization where I thought, oh, if I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm gonna add, end up like sad and alone. You know, I have this maybe goal of like getting married or, you know, having <laughs> just having a girlfriend or whatever, and like I'm not on that path. And so I thought, okay, well, what is it gonna take to get on this path? And I remembered this site the guy had told me about. And I read about it and sort of went on this whole journey through that.
1: How did you end up at this house that was ultimately immortalized in a book about this underground culture?
0: I'd say it's like 50% luck and 50% that I'm very willing just to jump on opportunities immediately. And probably a lot of that came from being a professional gambler where I think I'm pretty good at like risk-reward sort of stuff. But essentially what happened was... There was a pickup conference in Chicago where a lot of the most famous guys were going. This is like early on when I had no idea what I was doing. And I knew that I was on the precipice of sort of either going deep into this or just disregarding it. Because when I get into something, I go pretty hardcore usually. And I thought, okay, what I need to know before I can get hardcore about it is like, is this legit? Or is this just sort of like a weird internet thing? Because I lived in Austin at the time and I was sort of in touch with like some local guys who were like a lot better than I was, but they weren't. If that was the end of the path, it wasn't necessarily a path that I wanted to go down. (laughs) And so a guy named Tyler Durden, Owen Cook from Real Social Dynamics, was going to be in Chicago along with Papa and some other guys. And so I had, this is actually kind of funny because it ties into the travel thing. I had exactly enough frequent flyer miles to fly round trip to Chicago. And it was only because there was some promo where if you switched your phone service to AT&T, they gave you like 25,000 points or whatever. And I tried to convince all my friends to do it. Nobody would do it except for me. And so I booked this flight to Chicago. And of course, when you book with points, you maybe don't get the flight you want. And so it was this flight that got in at like 8 a.m. And then I went to book the ticket to the conference and it was sold out. But I already had the flight and I was like, well, all right, I guess I'm just going to go anyway. And this guy, Papa, who's he's also one of the, fam- you know, the big people in the game, he and I had been in touch. And I, like in retrospect, it was clearly that he just wanted to sell me a workshop <laughs> which was like their main product. But I think I didn't quite get that at the time. And I thought like, (laughs) it was probably partly that he was a networker and being friendly. And I think I was like in a small way coming up in that community in that I was really bad, but I was at least willing to like put myself out there, which, you know, a lot of people weren't willing to do. I arrive in Chicago in the morning. He's the only person I know there. You know, I've never met him or anything. I've never, I think maybe I've talked to him on the phone once and I call him, he's sleeping. Of course, they were out the night before. It's like eight or 9 a.m. And he's like, hey, what's going on, man? I'm like, oh, sorry. I guess you're sleeping. Like, I just got here. I'm excited to, like, meet people and stuff. And he's like, well, you know, Mike is is awake. And Mike was this guy named Sick Boy, who who was sort of another one of, like, the up-and-coming guys. And so he met up with me. And we got along well, just sort of chatting about normal stuff. And then this sort of magic thing happened where as people woke up, they joined us because they knew Sick Boy. But then because I was there and wasn't like a total weirdo, I guess they thought I was good at it. And so by the time it was like noon and everybody was awake, it was just sort of seen that I was one of them, even though I really, really wasn't. And at the time, the big thing going around in this community was that they were going to rent Dean Martin's old mansion in the Hollywood Hills. And it was going to be like the five best pickup artists in the world. And they were telling me about this, not in any way that I was invited, but just sort of like, hey, here's something cool we're doing, you know, whatever. And at the end of this thing, this conference, Papa said, oh, you know, you're, you're actually really good at pickup. We should invite you to Mystery's Lounge. And Mystery's Lounge at the time was supposed to be this forum of the top 100 pickup artists in the world. And I was like easily one of the worst 100. <laughs> but they added me, of course, and, you know, I didn't correct them. And day two or three of being on this, you know, I was, I was up all night reading the posts. I mean, it was like this big deal. And they said, hey, we got the house. We have four out of the five rooms filled. We need one more roommate. Anybody on this forum is eligible. And I immediately replied, even though like none of my friends or family knew I was into this. I just bought a house in Austin, but I just saw it as this thing where if I don't do this, I will always wonder what happened if I did it. Whereas if I do do it and it's a disaster, like, well, you know, whatever, it's going to be fine. That's how I ended up there.
1: What was the range of emotions you felt upon reading the book about? I mean, I'm assuming it was an incredibly formative experience living in that house. What did it feel like to read about yourself as a product?
0: So honestly, what had happened was a few months before, maybe six months before the book was released, I went to LA to read a a draft of it. I lived with Neil Strauss, the author, for a year. And in that time, like I'd read drafts of his stuff. And it was always that it was finished. And then he would like tweak it. And so I read this thing. And I actually read it out loud with me, him, and Katya at dinner. So we were sitting at this restaurant for like three or four hours. I read the whole thing out loud to, to them.
1: And who's Katya?
0: She was my ex from, she sort of also plays a figure in a role in this book. And I'm reading this book out loud at this fondue restaurant in Santa Monica. And we get to the part where I could either look like a good person or a bad person, and there are no more pages. And so I was like, hey, like, where are the rest of these pages? And he's like, oh, I haven't written that part yet. And like, I knew his process enough to know that he had. And I was like, (laughs) oh, God. And so he actually asked me, he's like, you know, do you want your real name in the book or do you want Herbal, which was my like online, you know, handle in the forums? I said, don't put my real name in this book because I thought I was going to get thrown under the bus. So when I read the book, I read it standing in Barnes and Noble, like the day it got released, waiting to see if I was going to be a good guy or a bad guy. And it was extremely nice to me, like probably nicer than it should have been. And so (laughs) honestly, I just felt relief more than anything.
1: Do you regret not having it be your real name?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I did for a long time, because certainly a hundred times more people know who Herbal is or have heard the name than know who Tynan is. But then these days, I think I don't want to be famous, so maybe it worked out well. But I don't know. I probably would have made my life a little bit different. It would have been interesting.
1: What was happening that that was happening? Why did the pickup movement happen then, in your view? And why is it so inextricably tied to, you know, a lot of these adjacent communities like making money on the internet, like digital nomadism? There's a lot of connection there that's gestured to that we don't put our finger on very often. But the reality is if you hung out with a bunch of digital nomads in the mid-aughts, the percentage of them that had read literature about dating, that specifically PUA literature, would be 80, 90%.
0: I don't know if there's really any way to know for sure. I guess to me what it felt like, it felt like those sort of decades were almost like the nerds rise to power in a way. I've always been a nerd. And I I remember when it wasn't cool at all. And it wasn't like, oh, it's not cool, but you're going to be rich in the future. Like it was like, oh, it's not cool. And you're going to like sit in like a windowless office, like crunching numbers for someone. You know what I mean? And I think that around that time with online businesses and programming and all that sort of stuff. All of a sudden, nerds started to bubble up a little bit. Where it was like, oh, actually, being analytical and being smart can get you ahead and sort of by traditional metrics as well, not just maybe you're good at Dungeons and Dragons or whatever. I think there was this sort of, maybe still is this idea of like, oh, you can kind of learn how to do anything. I mean, I think Tim did that a lot for the digital nomad community. I think Pickup did that for, you know, dating. You're talking about Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss, yeah. And also just having that kind of communication, like mystery was this random dude, you know, if it wasn't for him, I don't think any of this would really exist. And he was this random guy in Toronto who was saving up money for bus fare to go to clubs when he was like 21 to sit on the side of the sidelines to see what people did and try to figure it out. And like, how would I have been in touch with him if it wasn't for like the internet and forums? You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it was just sort of like perfect timing in terms of a lot of these things at once. It's an interesting thing to think about. We're a long
1: time separated from those initial genesis phases. And you see a lot of folks who were leaders in the PUA, you know, wash their history, wash their past from it. They don't say the word anymore unless it's a critique. There's a lot of vitriol from, I think, the mainstream, from women, from men too. It's like very fashionable just to think that these are real loser idiots, you know, that that's like something that you can kind of say that and everybody agrees and you just get on with your life. I'm curious what you think about that critique and the fact that so many people have distanced themselves from it, whereas you seem really confident to say I was a part of it. Here's what it was.
0: I talk about it and I'm open about it because I mean, for one, it was definitely one of the most positive things to happen in my life. Wouldn't be married to my wife today if it wasn't for that. And I also probably wouldn't have a lot of the friends I have today if it wasn't for that, because it you know just taught me social skills not just dating and i also feel like you know sometimes you have to pay the price for things and so i benefited a lot from this community and so i think the price i'm obligated to pay is to to speak honestly about it i do think some of the critiques are accurate though and and i think there's this sort of unfortunate but necessary situation where when somebody goes into pickup usually they're an introvert who isn't bothering anybody Because they they don't have the courage to bother anybody. You know what I mean? They're not out in clubs. They're just at home. When you learn a little bit of it, you sort of become a menace. (laughs) And not intentionally, but it's just like, you know, you understand enough of it to get out there, but not enough to make it a pleasant experience for anybody. (laughs) And honestly, like, like, I feel bad for some of the women I interacted with in that time. Not because I was, like, horrible, but because I was just, like, super awkward and, like, probably made them feel uncomfortable. By accident, because I'm trying to tell them a really boring story or like you sort of try on these personas of being like more cocky than you are. And it's just very awkward. I mean, it's very cringy. And so I get why people have a negative impression. First of all, I I totally get why women have a negative impression of it. Like back in the day when I was good and out there, if a woman interacted with me, she would never think that I did pick up. Even if I told her, which I always would, I always had this rule that I would never kiss someone unless I told them about it because I didn't want someone to feel like they were being tricked. They would always be like, Oh, well, you weren't really into that. I'm like, No, 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 I was in the book. Like, I was really into it. But because the way you act is so natural and it's really just learning social skills, it doesn't seem like you're doing anything. When you're in that middle phase, it's so awkward. And so they're like, Oh, that's a pickup artist. And so all of the experiences they can form an opinion on are, are generally bad. And so I get that. And you know, I think a lot of the a lot of the people getting into it are troubled and it's weird when you're a man and you're bad at this fundamental part of you know manhood or uh, being a human. That affects you in certain ways. So I think people do get into it pretty weird. A lot of the guys I saw were weird.
1: I really like and respect Mark Manson's work and read it regularly. He's definitely evolved into this more holistic thinker about relationships, but he still writes about them all the time. And It's almost like when you read his stuff, it's like, Oh, that's, you know, what pickup should have been all along. Like go see a therapist and be like a, you know, this full person that has in touch with their emotions and is confident in social situations and sticks up for themselves and has clear boundaries. And yeah, like all these great, shit. but the reality is, is like, that's where you end up. That's not always where you start.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Of all the people I know who got good at it, or I'd say most of them, that's what the process looked like. But, You don't market based on that. I mean, Mark's good; he does, and and he's smart for doing that, but but most people don't market based on that because most guys who are in that beginning phase, they aren't even interested in that. A lot of the marketing back when I was in was like, get 10 phone numbers in a week, which was like a mind-blowing proposition back then. You know what I mean? It wasn't like become a whole person who's comfortable in his own skin. Nobody's signing up for that. It's become a lot more about profit, so it's a lot more about... Advertising and you know lowest common denominator advertising stuff. So you know that's why I don't really associate with it as much now. But I think at its core, it's a really positive thing. I think it's positive for men and women. Like I, th- I think the interactions I had with women were a lot better f- for them and for me because I went through it.
1: Today's show is sponsored
0: by App Sumo, the number one
1: digital marketplace for entrepreneurs. That's right, they're a marketplace. And a great way to get your name in front of 1 million plus entrepreneurs, founders, affiliate marketers, and small businesses. You can sell your software, ebook, PDF template library, online course, WordPress plugin, or even event tickets. You get the idea. Anything for entrepreneurs, you can find it on AppSumo. The average digital product on AppSumo earns between seven hundred and five thousand dollars and $5,000 a month, depending on the type of product. What an easy, no-brainer, extra revenue stream for you and your business. I've listed my book before the exit on AppSumo, and I know many listeners of this show are already getting results by using this amazing marketplace. So check them out. Head on over to AppSumo.com. That's what we're doing around here. And thanks to AppSumo for sponsoring the show. Can we go back to the beginning days? I mean, one of the things you were early on was, you know, nomadic lifestyle. You wrote a blog for a while with your friend Todd called Life Nomadic. You wrote a book on the topic. We would await your packing posts, (laughs) which you, I believe, invented. Maybe. We would await them as if it was like, you know, draft day or something. (laughs) Tiny's coming out with a post and then we would all emulate it and you're coming out with one in a few days. So, how did you pay for it?
0: I had some money saved up. Not nearly enough that it made any sense to do it. Like, I think maybe I had like $5,000 or something, like certainly less than $10,000 at the time.
1: What year did this idea occur to you? I want to kind of dig into like the seedling of what inspired this.
0: I think it was 2007. It was largely Tim Ferriss. His book, For Our Work Week came out. And I read the book and I really related to him in a lot of ways because I thought, oh, like, I'm very similar to this guy and how I approach different things and all these things. And I saw myself as a traveler, which is sort of weird looking back because I actually didn't travel that much. But like, you know, I would do road trips all across the US with my friends. I'd maybe do like an international trip or two per year. And so it was this weird disconnect where I read this book and I was like, oh, I'm a traveler like this guy. And then I was like, but I'm actually not like he's actually doing it. I'm sort of thinking about it. It just sort of created this weird rift between like who I thought I was and who I actually was. And I remember the exact moment I had the idea. I was playing risk with my friends at one of their apartments and I'm looking at this map and I'm like realizing that I haven't been to like any of it. In that moment, I just told them I was like, I'm going to sell all my stuff and I'm just going to go travel. And my friend Todd was there and he's like, yeah, okay, I'll do that too. (laughs) And honestly, that was it. Like maybe it was percolating in my subconscious a little bit. Like I said, with the pickup thing, it's like, oh, well, right now I'm not on this path where I'm going to see all the stuff I want to see. So like, why don't I change that?
1: What was it like?
0: It was exciting. I mean, it was really exciting. It felt very liberating where, you know, it's, it was almost like when I learned pickup and it was like, oh, you can do this. I think we all sort of think we know everything about the world, or at least in like broad strokes. You're like, oh, like maybe I don't know anything about art, but like I kind of know it exists. I know what sorts of art is out there or whatever. And then you do this. You're like, oh, this is this whole other world that's out here that I didn't realize existed. Like, there's different ways of living in different countries. There's like this nomad community. Maybe there wasn't much of one then, but you know, you'd meet people occasionally. It was exciting.
1: You remind me. I don't know. This one way I relate to the way you d- describe things, and I, I, can, I just have this list of things like personal finance, multiple streams of income, investing versus earning, cruises, low monthly burn, blogging, van life. Poker movement, like just this constant ability to completely throw yourself into stuff, and you realize—I mean, when you live a life that revolves around earning, say, in a standard American city, it's really difficult to go be a maniac about stuff. And fi- and you realize when you're, you know, a maniac that there's like a ton of other people doing it too. I realized this when I took a mini retirement in Spain for a few years and essentially trained like a pro cyclist, and I just found out like. There's a bunch of amateurs that do this. There's a bunch of people, we call it rich man or poor man. Like a lot of things in life are populated by like the hyper wealthy or the voluntary poor, like the people in the middle really miss out. So in the cycling community, all the fast guys that get invited to these secret rides and they go to all these races and and stuff, they're either wealthy or voluntarily poor. Nobody with a job could ever manage to be such a maniac. right? And it feels like you've done that sort of time and time again, like you're ability to manifest money in your life or whatever. I'm, I'm curious, what, what's your take on that?
0: I was really lucky. I became a professional gambler 2001 or something like that. And at its peak, you know, I was making several hundred thousand dollars a year. And I never took any of it. I, it actually all got stolen from me, so I never really got much of it.
1: Can you tell us how you made a couple hundred thousand dollars a year gambling?
0: Essentially, it started that casinos were giving out bonuses that were too large they shouldn't have given out. And so, you know, the, the casinos operate in a very small margin, about a 1% house advantage. And a reasonable bonus would switch that to maybe a 2 or 3% player advantage. And when you think about how much money casinos make off 1%, you can make a lot off 2 or 3%. And so, I found this independently and then I found a few other people online who were doing it, and then we sort of formed this community around people doing it.
1: And this was online poker.
0: It wasn't poker. This was before the whole poker thing. So this was like blackjack slots, stuff like that. And it started out with these bonuses, but it really evolved to do a whole bunch of other stuff, winning jackpots. And it was basically this community where anytime the odds were in the player's favor, they could be tweaked. Even loyalty programs were sometimes too good. We would exploit them. And so I had this weird experience of being, you know, like 18, 19, or I guess it was maybe 20 of sort of having a net worth of like hundreds of thousands of dollars, which was a lot of money back then, and spending it, some of it, but then also losing it, because it all got stolen from me.
1: How'd it get stolen?
0: I was playing under multiple names, which you're not supposed to do. It's not illegal, but it's against casino rules. And I didn't realize they were sort of in cahoots with NetTeller, which was like the PayPal of gambling. And I woke up one morning and it was basically like, Hey, we know that all these accounts are yours. Like you can spend a bunch of time and try to prove they're not, but we know they are. So like your accounts are frozen. Good luck. And so I had this interesting experience of like sort of knowing what money can do for you and what it can't do for you because I gained a lot and I lost a lot. And I realized my life didn't change that much. And I think that almost made me immune to caring about money. I'm fortunate to have made that much, but I'll, and look, if I didn't make all that much, I couldn't have done project Hollywood and, and pick up. So it all, you know, I did spend some of it. And so I think It gave me a good focus on money to the point where I was, I would spend money on things that mattered to me and not spend money on things that didn't matter to me. So like I lived in an RV behind a gas station where someone tried to sell me crack in San Francisco for many years when I could have afforded a pretty nice apartment because it just didn't matter to me and I enjoyed it, but I bought an island at the same time, right? So I think I've always been pretty good at like spending money on things where I would get a lot of leverage towards values I cared about versus that rising tide of spend that most people go through that I think is sort of why a lot of the, that middle class that you talk about can't do these things.
1: One of the things that I think I had an incorrect view of you, or maybe it was correct, in the early days when I would read a lot of your things, I would think you were doing things for the stunt of it. At one point, you put a pool in your house. Yeah. You know, you had these really interesting stories of like these cool motorcycles and living in this RV. Buying an island, you just mentioned this, And it almost feels like, where's the line between you're doing it for attention versus this is like a genuine thing.
0: I think I do zero of it for attention. Uh, That's an exaggeration, I'm sure. But one of my friends once, he was into pickup too. And he said to me, I don't think you realize that the reason everybody does everything else is to try to impress girls and that nothing you do is to impress girls. I thought, oh yeah, that is probably true. And you know, I guess girls is also a proxy for the world in general, right? I would say that especially in the days when my blog was like my focus, when I was on the brink of something where I was like, ah, should I do this? Should I not? The like, hey, it's going to make a good story would often push me over the edge. And a lot of it is actually, it's not even to tell someone else the story. It's to sort of tell myself the story. And I just sort of wonder what it's like. Like years ago, I bought this Bentley. I was just so curious what it was like to have a Bentley. Like it wasn't (laughs) like, you know, like I wrote a blog post about it, but like, it was just like I'm just like I just want to know what it's like, and so a lot of these things I think I do for myself just to satisfy that curiosity. But I think it, it, they're seen as sort of stunts or like crazy. But to me, it's like obvious. Where it's like, well, why wouldn't you buy an island? Like the thing was under hundred grand. We split it ten ways. For many of us, including people who haven't been a lot, it's like the best purchase they've ever made. To me, it's not crazy. It's like well, it's it's much more sane than buying like a house in the suburbs.
1: What are you really interested in right now?
0: I think it's something I'm figuring it out you know, I had all these goals, getting married goals around success, stuff like that. And then I, I think I reached them, I don't know, by an earlier age than I expected, but sort of in a shorter time period than I expected, which sort of I think has left me reeling a little bit. And so I'm trying to figure out that next thing.
1: Can I sum that up by saying, you've done well financially, and you've, you know, met the woman that you want to spend the rest of your life with. Yeah. So you sort of sewed that up.
0: I think even like five years ago, I would have said, Maybe it'll take 10 years because actually I think I I felt like I was behind in some ways on those things. And then I think it happened in a shorter period of time than I thought. What I find myself caring about now is I feel like my needs are met or certainly exceeded. And so now I'm thinking more about like maybe the circle around me, like family members, how can I help them? How do I, you know, I think success is obviously a lot better when all of your friends have it. And and I have a lot of awesome friends, so a a lot of them do have it. But I think about maybe some that don't this is an uninspiring and not very exciting answer, but I just want to have tea with my friends now. It's so boring, but it's like, I have these incredible people in my life and we're at a point where we can travel together. We can have good discussions, go on cruises, drink tea together. You know, it doesn't make for good blog posts, but it's really satisfying. So that's what I, you know, it's kind of what I enjoy doing.
1: And when you say drink tea, you really mean it. Yeah, yeah. Can you describe a little bit about why is tea worth it?
0: I think there's a lot of reasons and it depends what you're goals are. What I like about it is I think it provides the perfect backdrop for connection with other people. And that's kind of like a weird, you know, new agey sort of thing to say a little bit, but you know, you put away your phone, you're drinking something that's sort of subtle and nuanced, which I think sort of brings your mind to a certain place. It both gives you a little bit of energy and relaxes you in certain ways, but not so much that it changes who you are in terms, you know, in, in the way that like maybe a Red Bull would or alcohol. And I think typically the setting in which you drink tea—it's you know maybe you're in nature, you're in a beautiful tea house. It's just a really nice environment. And when I think back to like some of my favorite memories, I think back to sitting in tea houses with my friends. One
1: of the things I like about reading about your travels is you tend to do it vis a vis projects. And so recently, you've written about a quest to view all the paintings in the world by one of your favorite artists. Can you share? a little bit about that journey. And just for context, I've seen you do this time and time again. And I find it very inspiring. I do it with my projects as well, whether it's uh, watch shopping or riding certain sorts of roads with my bike or my mountain bike. It's like you find yourself jettisoned into like a community when you go places and you have like these really kind of move the needle conversations as opposed to seeing Paris in order to sort of soak up the vibe of Paris, so to speak.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that probably all of us nomad types go through is the first few years, everything you do is amazing, right? Because you're like, oh my God, I've never been to Paris before. Like, I'd never been to Europe when I did Life Nomadic, you know, in 2008 or whatever. But then after a while, it's like you go to Paris for the fifth time and it's like, well, what am I doing here? And so it's fun to have a a mission. So mine was Vermeer Quest. I really like Vermeer paintings. I, I like art. Why?
1: Yeah. You talk a lot about art. I'm curious as to, you know, how one gets into it. Tell me about it.
0: So what really got me into it, I mean, I think my family would always go to museums, like Museum of Science, Art Museum. I don't know if it was just because it was like a sort of inexpensive, like culturally enriching, positive thing to like do as a family. Like, I don't really even know. For some reason, we always did that. And I never loved it. I like the Science Museum, but like art museums, it's like, how long do I look at this painting? Which painting? (laughs) Like, I didn't quite get it.
1: Is it awkward to move on yet? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I remember once going with my father and my brother, and we're just sort of like staring at something. And it was like, well, oh, should we like move to the next? Like, I just don't know. My friend, I'm sure you're friends with him too, Nick Gray, uh, he started a company called Museum Hack. And I went on a tour with him. And it was like the opposite of what I thought museum tours were. It was fun. It was fast paced. It was sort of like the story behind a lot of the art. And I think more than anything, it was interesting instead of like, well, this painting was painted by this guy in this year and he's part of this movement, which I have no context for. It was like, you know, there was this bidding war between these two museums to get this piece and it's hidden in the corner and like people don't realize, but this is the first one of this. It brought it to life. And one of the things Nick does is, you know, I've been to probably 50 museums with him at this point and like we're in and out in an hour (laughs) and you still have energy when you're done and you've seen like the things you cared about. And so I think that made it a lot more accessible to me. And in that process, you know, I would skip a lot of stuff, but then sometimes something would catch my eye. And one of those is Vermeer. Vermeer paintings, just the way he does light is, is absolutely incredible. I mean, if you look at a Dutch master's sort of gallery, even if you don't know anything about art, you'll notice that Vermeer paintings are different than the others. And so then I sort of looked him up on Wikipedia or something, saw that he only had 36 paintings, realized I'd already seen like six. Because I was in New York, and I was like, "Well, hey, look, I'm, you know, I can have this goal. I'm already sixth of the way there." But more than anything, it was like, "Well, this will just be a fun excuse to like go to museums I wouldn't go to, go to places I wouldn't go to." It took me to Ireland, which I kind of had no reason to go to otherwise. I went to the Delft in the Netherlands, where you know, I think that it's, there's this trap where where have you been in France besides Paris? Most people haven't, you know what I mean? So I think it's a fun excuse to go to. You know, I've been to Dresden a couple times now, and. So you end up going to some like interesting places.
1: You mentioned that you've been thinking a lot about investing lately. Yeah. It's so weird to, to recognize the fact that we have perspective on career now, You know, because <laughs> I feel like I met you when we were kids. When is it worth starting to think about investing?
0: I mean, maybe the answer is different for everybody. But I think for me, I've, I've always felt like I'm really bad at making money, but excellent at managing money.
1: Can you give some related context here? Because... You say you're bad at making money and great at managing it, which I've seen a lot of evidence to the latter on your blog over the years. But with the former, you just mentioned you know—you were able to hack a, a system for a couple hundred thousand dollars when you were 17. Did that ability change, or was that a moment in time, or what happened there?
0: You know, I guess it's a spectrum, but I would actually call that more managing money than earning money. And I think it's really just because day in and day out, I was evaluating risk, volatility, risk reward, bankroll management, like all this stuff that like, I think, first of all, investors don't talk about, but probably should. But like, it's not something that I have to think about. It's something that I, I understand intuitively just because of repeat exposure. I was a gambler for seven years, a professional gambler, and then a poker player for years after that. I think maybe in some contexts, it's like, well, it should be something people should be thinking about all the time. Because. I'm sure both of us have seen people who earn a ton of money don't manage it well, and they have nothing or they have debt a lot of times, which you know, I think is probably worse than not making ever making money in some ways.
1: Let's talk about it then. Just some things that maybe you think about investing that might be underrepresented. You already mentioned one, which is you know, things like bankroll management.
0: I guess there's a lot of directions to go, but I think one, one is that I think people don't understand what variance is, and I think they don't understand what risk-reward is. Like Anybody picking individual stocks is almost certainly making a a huge error. A lot of times they'll, they'll know that they are like, oh yeah, don't time the market, don't pick stocks, but they still do it because subconsciously they don't understand why. Even crypto to me is like such an obvious, it's like, yes, it's much riskier, but it's such an asymmetric upside downside that to me, I feel so much more comfortable buying crypto than I would Tesla stock or Apple stock or something that I think other people would feel a lot more safe buying.
1: Describe that just a little bit more. I think that's interesting.
0: Let's just compare, say, Ethereum and Tesla stock. In some ways, they're they're very different. But I think if you just think about risk-reward at any given time, I'm thinking, what's the risk-reward of putting my money in any given place, whether it's private placement, business, stock market, bonds, whatever it is. If you're buying Tesla, then you think you have an advantage over the entire U.S. financial system that is also researching and looking at Tesla. And you don't. You just don't have an advantage over Wall Street hedge funds. Or if you do, hey, I want to hear about it. I've never found anybody who can articulate why they think they have an advantage. I've heard them say, like, well, I think it's going to do better than analysts think. It's like, no, no that just means you don't understand what analysts are doing. To me, what you're doing with Tesla is you're, it's essentially a coin flip because it's priced accurately. You're taking what's called uncompensated risk. You're taking excess volatility because it can move a lot more than the, av- than the stock market, but you don't have a greater than average expected return on it. So you're taking uncompensated risk.
1: It reminds me of sports betting almost. Like I was just like, that's like betting on the Vikings to beat the Cowboys when there's a spread number on it, right?
0: Right. I mean, it's the same sort of thing, right? Like the, That spread is essentially what the financial system is siphoning out of the markets because they're better than we are. So it doesn't mean you're never going to win. It just means you should not be expected to win long term. And it's also dangerous to win, right? If you buy Tesla and it goes way up, you think you're a genius. If you buy (laughs) Tesla and it goes down, you realize, oh, I shouldn't try to pick individual stocks. So that means 50% of people or 49% of people or whatever are like getting the wrong impression. And they're going to keep doubling down until they lose their money. Probably most of them. If you look at something like Ethereum, you think, okay, well, for one, Wall Street isn't in on it yet. There's actually certain, I mean, this would be a very long conversation, but there's certain fundamental reasons why it's likely to go up. And it's a very asymmetric risk. Either it goes to zero, which I think is impossible at this point, but we could say maybe it goes down 66% or 70%, or it goes up like 5 to 10x. And you could argue what the odds are of those things, but I think it would be very difficult to come to the the conclusion that there's not like at least a 30, 40% chance it goes up like 5x plus or 25% chance. And if you do the math on that, the EV, the expected value is incredibly high you might not want to put all of your money in on it because there's a lot of volatility and all this sort of stuff. But people aren't thinking about these things. They aren't thinking about volatility. They aren't thinking about risk reward. Most people are choosing individual stocks, which is like taking all of the volatility and variance with like no expected value over just buying
1: index funds. Are there other common examples of not understanding this that you see often, whether it's with spending habits or investments, like this idea? Like I thought it was interesting that Buying Tesla is an example of this sort of category mistake. Are there other common examples that you see often?
0: The one that kills me the most, and and I'm certainly biased towards on this one, but getting a four-year degree, I think, is like a ridiculous risk-reward proposition. In most cases, now not all of them, right? Like if you want to be a doctor, first of all, if you just want to be a doctor and you don't care about money. It's great EV because you're going to get, it's the only way you're going to get to do what you want to do. Same with being a lawyer. And even if you only care about money, I think there's good arguments for certain degrees, whether it's because there's gatekeeping like lawyers and doctors, or if it's just because, hey, this is an easy way to get an engineering degree and I'm going to, you know, it's going to be high EV. I want to be an engineer. That's great. I think one of my most controversial posts ever, I wrote a post about what would happen if you took the cost of a four-year degree and just invested it. Instead of going to college, because there's all these stats where it's like, well, you make 33% higher in, you know, lifetime returns with a degree or 50% or whatever it is. And first of all, it's very skewed. It's not evenly distributed amongst majors, obviously. And so there's a lot that underperform, but I basically couldn't find a scenario where investing that money was worse. There are confounding factors where you're not going to get a scholarship to invest money unless you join the Teal Fellowship, which I know people who did and they invested in crypto and now they're a lot better off, right? I do too. (laughs) It's not that college is bad or that it's not the right choice, but it's that people aren't thinking about the EV of it. They're not thinking about the variance of it and they're not thinking about alternatives. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes people make is they don't think about alternatives. People think about one or two options. They think state school, private school. They don't think, what if I invest the money? What if I go to trade school? What if I just teach myself? I think that's something that I've been fortunate enough to like figure out early is that like I think about literally everything. Like when I'm thinking about what to do next, like I've thought about selling everything. I've thought about putting all my money in a trust so that I'm poor. I've thought about like moving to Japan. I've thought about becoming an artist, like, which and I and I'm terrible at art. <laughs> I've thought about being a public school teacher. Like I just think about every single option and try to apply the same framework to deciding whether it's a good thing to do or not.
1: One of the themes right now seems to be that people with cash are sort of running out of good things to buy. There's, it's like an inflationary environment. Everybody's like kicking around investment ideas. Everybody's sharing their crypto portfolios and stock portfolios and stuff. Are there things that you might be thinking about doing with your money or the time that it's buying you or whatever that might be good to think about in 2022?
0: Obviously not financial advice, blah, blah. I think to not buy Ethereum right now is bananas. It's like an easy, easy, obvious thing to do. In terms of spending, I think that this is something that I predict I'm early on, but we'll see. Maybe it never really catches on. But like I've bought a bunch of shared properties with my friends. Something I realized is that when you're in the markets and you're trying to spend your money for a return, you're going to get like eight or 9%. And that's because there's a lot of competition around it. And so that it drives it down to sort of, you know, what the market will bear, but you can spend money in a way that you get a huge return in terms of utility. And at the end of the day, the reason you're trying to make that return is to convert it to utility later. Probably the best example of this is these shared properties I've bought with my friends. We bought a place in Hawaii for about a hundred thousand bucks. Now my friends and I are locals in this, in the town of Hilo. We go there and like, we bond, you know, over scuba diving, like, eating amazing Hawaiian food, hiking in the rainforest, like the amount of money we would have to spend to do that without buying this property would be a lot more. And also it just wouldn't happen because we wouldn't have that nexus, that magnetic pull that brings us all there. I think it's great to try to get a return in the market and invest. And I love doing that. But I also think like, well, if you can just get a higher return by spending that money, why why aren't you doing that?
1: I just want to give a big thanks to all of you who listened to ads like this and went on over to dynamitejobs.com to see what we've got going on over there. Because of that, we've helped place hundreds of qualified remote professionals in your companies last year. And for this holiday season, many of you are gearing up your operation for continued growth in 2022. And to help you do it, we've got three exciting options for you to explore. The first is our entirely new hiring platform, With a job post dashboard that allows you to repost and promote anytime, we've got a growing list of features there, including intelligent promotion options to help you get the maximum amount of applications. We've also got our done-for-you service. If you're sick of sorting, assessing, and interviewing, you can hire our senior recruiting staff to do the heavy lifting on your behalf. They are experienced at identifying trajectory, alignment, salary fit, and much more. And the best part is it's a flat fee. If you're hiring multiple times in 2022, we're offering bundles with steep discounts. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and book a call to hear about that. And finally, we offer contract recruiting. That's right, a zero-risk hiring option if you don't really know about the long-term fit. Or if you're looking for a partner to help take care of the legalities of hiring contractors, we can do that for a monthly fee for the contractors that you bring on board. So let's grow together. If you're looking to grow your remote business, book a call with our team and find out today how Dynamite Jobs can help. You can find out about this and much more over at dynamitejobs.com slash remote recruiting. I want to ask you a little bit about your writing before we go. I'm curious, you know, we both come from this period of time that I think blogs were such a special thing it's hard to describe it to younger people like they were the first dispatches from real people beyond media and you've continued to keep up with your blog what have they become are they still that
0: i don't know i don't really read anybody's blogs anymore to be honest with you i read derek sivers blogs you know now i think it's almost like a news thing i read a lot of like travel blogs and stuff like that but it's not it's not the same I keep mine going because I feel sort of indebted to my readers. I feel like I've benefited so much from having them that I think like well, continue to pay that back by by writing and it's it's you know it's a good thing to just have a way to organize your thoughts. but I agree I, th- I think when when you and I started blogging, it was sort of like this really special era, and I think a lot of it is that it wasn't that commercialized like I saw the same thing in pickup where when I got into it. Nobody really cared about making money. People made money, but it was the afterthought. People cared about learning. And that felt true back when we started blogging, where it was like, we were all sort of doing interesting things and wanted to share it with other people. And then, of course, you know, we all started to make some money off of it, and then it became this profitable thing, and that changes motivations for everybody. I still like doing it. I think it's like a special thing. Whenever I find a good article and it's on someone's personal blog, I, it's like a breath of fresh air. It is. You know, versus maybe reading it on like a clickbaity YouTube video or something like that. But I guess I wouldn't, you know, if I could invest in blogging and personal blogging, I wouldn't. I don't know that it's it, you know, it's going to be a big part of the future.
1: Well, and you did for a while there. Yeah, that's true. So for co- some context, you started a WordPress competitor. Yeah. That had some feature differences and benefits and you wrote a post recently where you talked about, "Hey, I'm for the first time I'm not going to hold myself to the standard of publishing every week." You know, you're one of the last holdouts from the era. <laughs> we appreciate that. But it was interesting reading the comment section where people were really emotional about it. What did you make of that?
0: It was interesting. For a long time, so I made this blogging platform called Set. That was a whole thing.
1: You like taught yourself how to program. Is that correct to do that?
0: Yeah. One of the last challenges of it, and sort of one of the reasons I gave up, is that dealing with spam was just a nightmare.
1: And specifically, how do people spam blogs?
0: It's basically just like content farms in other countries that are trying to post cheap links to like, you know, Cialis or whatever, or like SEO, fake SEO stuff. It's just like garbage. And I just got overwhelmed with it. And I was like, you know, this is taking up too much of my time. I'm just going to turn off comments. And it's too bad because a lot of why we started set was to have a better connection. I mean, that is the reason is I felt like, hey, I have these people who are rooting for me that we have some stuff in common and I like hearing from them. And so I was trying to make a blogging platform that would build that connection. But because of the spammers, I gave up and I cut it off. I actually kind of felt like I was writing in an echo chamber. You know, people send emails or tweets sometimes, but, you know, I made it pretty hard to interact. And so I think I didn't realize how much the blog meant to people. You know, and I especially really appreciated people who were like, oh, I've been reading since... The days when you tried to put a swimming pool in your living room, which is like 20 years ago, almost, you know, and it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's really touching, honestly, that like, you know, someone would care enough to like, read my stuff for that long. And it also, I think I can sort of put myself in their shoes and think like, well, it must be kind of fun to watch somebody progress. I think, you know, hopefully I progressed in a lot of ways since then. It's like probably pretty cool to see someone like learn from their mistakes and reach some goals and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, you know, so I'll always keep the blog going for that reason it was touching that people cared. Even the people who are pissed about it, like, you know, that comes from emotion too. And, and I, you know, I appreciate that.
1: What surprised you when you started to meet your readers? What was different about them than you expected from the online indications of who they might be versus who they actually were?
0: When you only see the online indications there, you don't see them as complete people necessarily, right? You see like their name, maybe their avatar. And like, you know, I would just sort of have a vague sense of like, Oh, I like this guy. Cause he like, comments and their nice comments or whatever. I remember when I did my first meetup, I was really nervous. I wasn't going to like my readers because really at that point, I'm sure part of the reason I wrote the blog was because it made me feel important, right? Of course. But I also felt like I was serving this sort of community of like people who are a little bit weird like myself. And I remember thinking like, well, if I don't like these people, I'm probably going to stop writing. Fortunately, like I was shocked at like what incredible people they were. Like really, truly, like they were just like interesting people doing interesting things. They would like tell me about their projects. Now I do these these events that are just these sort of like me and 10 guys, you know, giving them some advice for a couple of days, events, or not just guys, but 10 people. I love them because I really get to know readers really in depth. I mean, it's like really kind of like vulnerable, deep sort of connection. I actually think I get more out of that than my blogging probably because I'm like, wow, these are like incredible, interesting people. It's like an honor that they care about what I'm writing about
1: one of the things about i've always noticed because it happens with this show as well is that i still reiterate it all the time it's shocking to me how few people actually show up online whether it's through a like or a comment that like this really represents such a small percentage of the total listenership or readership it's always something worth keeping in mind if you're a content producer
0: you know once in a while i do a uh A survey i did one this year of like hey what do you want to see in the blog what do you want to see more of and you know on a blog post i get like one comment maybe two comments like almost none these things are sort of annoying to fill out it's like 10 questions a lot of them short answer and like hundreds of people answer them every time i do them which is like blows my mind like these people aren't showing up for comments but like when i actually ask for help they're they're there
1: people that have something to lose people that have some gravitas in their life or whatever they're much less willing to like leave random traces around the internet
0: yeah, it used to not be that way.
1: You have a a little bit of a Kevin Kelly vibe in this sense that like when you look at your body of work, it's like you kind of money is just this breezy form of locomotion through all the stories and there's just these amazing stories that come about, but you never really sit down and hammer on like here's how to make money, here's how I did this and I was just curious about, you know, I'm sure you meet people in everyday life, you feel like, well, I would just be like Tyne. And if, if I could just figure out a way to make money online, I would you know, buy a Bentley and I would live in an RV and I would go traveling. What do you make of all that? What's your take when someone has that perspective?
0: There was definitely a phase when I was living in the RV where like, people would inaccurately think I was either super wealthy or like, extremely poor. Because like, you know, <laughs> I think people project certain things onto you. Money has always been a secondary factor for me. It's not that it's not a factor. I mean, I really like money and I like what it can do. But I also know through experience that like, if you're tenacious enough, you can figure out a way to do just about anything without that much money. And that goes with an asterisk of like, I came from a good family. Like if I needed a couch to sleep on, my parents would let me, you know, like I have a good support network. I'm not saying, okay, oh, a homeless person could buy a private island. But in terms of like the people who actually read my stuff, I think people would be shocked at how little money I was making a lot of the years when they thought I was rich. When you only spend money on things that matter to you and you really don't spend any money on anything else, you can get what you want often. you know, If you're willing to work for it, find deals, negotiate, stuff like that. I think often when people say like, oh, if I had money like Tynan, I would do this too. It's like, that's an excuse. Like it's, it's, people would say that in pickup all the time. We're like, They'd be like, oh, well, if I was rich and good looking like these guys, I'm like, we're not, you know, we can barely pay our rent and we're like, (laughs) you know, weird looking nerds. Like, I think often people just project their insecurities, you know, which isn't to say I haven't had a lot of advantages in certain ways, but I think probably a lot of what people want to do is more within reach than they think. And by making excuses like that, it's a way to stay in their comfort zone versus actually going up against the possibility of failure.
1: The last bit I want to ask you, which is perhaps the hardest question, which is simply that I think you know what you've represented for so many readers over the years is somebody who somehow broke down that wall of fear and went after those specific things. I and mean, a lot of us are on the other side of that wall, where we have a, a desire to live a different sort of life. And for whatever reason, we're just not doing it yet. What have you seen that works to help people bridge that gap?
0: I guess there's a lot of things I could say. If you never face that sort of rejection, you don't know that it's not so bad. So it's very easy to think like, well, if I, if I try for these things and I fail, it's going to be absolutely disastrous. So I'm not going to try it. I think that's one of the fortunate things that came out of Pickup is I had to face rejection like a dozen times every night for a year. And it makes you realize like, oh, my worst fears aren't actually that bad my biggest fear in like a real visceral sense was having a normal life and not doing anything other people didn't do cuz i thought well like what's the point of doing something that like if i go down the exact same path somebody else has already gone through so what you know like i lived i did some stuff and then i died like who cares about that and again like that comes from a privileged background of like hey i'm sure there's a lot of people who would just love to have that that security but i remember having this distinct thought of like i would rather be homeless in hawaii than have a normal job and Maybe in the same way that other people are driven from by fear, I was driven by fear of having a normal life. You know, maybe that's not that relatable. But I think, you know, the steps for most people are like, what do you actually care about in life? And I think most people don't know, because I think there's no incentive to think about it. I don't think our society prioritizes thinking about what you actually want. You know, most of pop culture, and I don't think it's a conspiracy theory or anything, I think it's just economics, but most of pop culture is pushing you towards wanting the same thing everybody else wants, which maybe shuts off that curiosity for a lot of people. So I think if you think about what you actually want, and you think about why you want it, which I think a lot of people don't do, I think that shifts that equation where actually maybe you're a little bit afraid to not get those things versus just never thinking about them. You know, one of the things I learned about in pickup is that Everything is a skill. I didn't think pickup was a skill. I thought you were born with what you have and, and that's it. Living in, outside of your comfort zone is also a skill. Then I don't think people realize that if you just do it a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more, all of a sudden, what I think most people would consider that ring outside of your comfort zone becomes your comfort zone. And in fact, I find it difficult to live anywhere else. Like <laughs> if my life gets too comfortable, I start getting antsy. I'm like, oh, what am I doing? There's no challenge here. I'm not, you know, pushing any of my boundaries, which is what I'm, I'm used to sort of having those feelings and emotions. And I don't think I'm special in that way. I think anybody can do that, but it, you know, probably took me five, 10 years, you know, just takes time.
1: Well, Tynan it is a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. We appreciate it.
0: Likewise, man. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Big shout out to Tynan for dropping by the show. I just love doing this one. I hope you enjoyed it as well. It was actually quite tough to prepare for because I felt like Chris Farley on the Chris Farley Show. Like, Remember that one blog post you wrote about this one thing? What about that? (laughs) I love this one. I hope you all having a good holiday if you're taking one. If not, I hope this episode inspired some interesting reflections and maybe some ideas for uh, how to hit the ground running next week. Speaking of next week, we'll be back as always. Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Time.